0: The Guardian.
1: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Richard Lee,
0: me, Claire Armistead, and me, Sean Kane.
1: This week, we welcome Chris McCabe and the poets Valgina Mort and Vaughan Rapatahana, poets working in Belarusian and Tereo, respectively. And later, Clive Boot will be joining us in the studio to discuss whether it's even possible to save a language in danger of extinction. Chris McCabe is the head of the National Poetry Library, which has just published an anthology of poems written in endangered languages called Poems from the Edge of Extinction. He came to the studio with the Belarusian poet Valgina Mord and the New Zealander Vaughan Rapatahana to talk about dying languages, but, Sean it wasn't just language that was at death's door
2: <laughs> yes uh i uh i had just uh, had quite severe tonsillitis uh, so my uh voice is uh very very thin in this interview you're very uh, very brave <laughs> um but i uh, i had to come in and talk to uh, these three cuz they're all so interesting and the project is so interesting um so uh i i uh, started by asking chris about why the national poetry library uh, launched their project
3: We launched the project because we were aware of the situation of languages around the world, how so many of them are falling silent. Linguists estimate that by the end of the century, half of the world's languages will fall silent. Uh, From our point of view, we wanted to encourage people to think about what happens with the poetry in those languages. Uh, It's mostly oral um, across the world. Um, And those languages and what they contain in poetry is not known fully. So we have an idea in the West of what poetry is, uh, what it does. It's largely based on the page, the written word. Um, But we wanted to, to hold on as much as we can to the poetry that exists in those languages, so we can start a discussion about about the broader aspects of poetry, but also so people in the future can um, have a sense of what poetry did in those languages.
2: Yeah, and so then over the last couple of years, in terms of the public response to that, because it was a call-out asking people to make submissions, and you said... uh a couple of years ago that you expected you would receive a lot in Gaelic, Cornish, Manx English and nearby European languages, uh, Breton maybe or Basque. What has been the, uh, the response?
3: Well, wow, I that, that was pretty prescient because we, we did receive um, poems in, in pretty much all of those languages. Um, one of the most exciting responses was in um, the Malay language, Christang. Um, which is a Creole language which um, has uh, elements of, of Portuguese in there. Um, and you know someone saw the call out on the other side of, of the world and, and sent us a poem in that language.
2: And so how many uh, examples that did you get from languages that uh, you mentioned before about that distinction between spoken language and written language? Um, did you get many submissions from examples of languages that are primarily Spoken and not recorded anymore.
3: We did receive some less than in written form, and I think you know we've got to be realistic about the assumptions we make about the kind of technology that people have access to around the world. Even the assumption that people would have the internet and be able to read, um, you know, the call out and then be able to you know to upload a recording. Um, you know, it's not it's not the case that that people can do that. Um, but we did receive recordings of poems and we're really excited that um, we'll be able to play some of those recordings in the Rohingya language uh, uh, documented by James Byrne and Shaisar Dozier uh, at the South Bank. so you know it, it, it's really about foreground in the voices of those poets I think we've moved away from you know a period when you know it's okay for you know the white man to go and document and capture poems and tell other people's stories what we really want is you know to to be able where we can for, for people to tell their own stories.
2: Yeah and so now we've got this book the uh, the poems from the edge of extinction how did that come about in terms of getting in touch with poets and, and asking them to take part?
3: Yeah so it came about through a really savvy editor uh, um uh, John Murray slash Chambers Publishing, who had seen the call out and got really excited about the potential for a, a poetry book. You know, it's like one of the most exciting responses was um, I really wanted a, a poem in Pitua, which is the language of Macau, a place I've visited, um, and I was told that there were no poets writing in that language. But an academic said, well, you should try this This person, Miguel Fernandez. Um, and he, he didn't get response for a while. I emailed him on uh, through Facebook, contacted through Facebook. Um, but it was wonderful to get his response, which was, um, I believe I am the last poet writing in this language. Wow. How can I help you? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it, it's moments like that that have just made it such an exciting project to work on.
2: <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, um, you you've got a poem in this. In this anthology. Um, Would you mind uh, reading us a poem now? Um, You're going to read it in English and in Belarusian.
4: Yes. I'm going to read you a different poem, a shorter one. Uh, Let me read it first in English and then in Belarusian, so you can pretend that you already understand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's called Little Song for a Pocket Knife. And uh, it's... Uh, historical context is the 1930s um, and uh, lots of people from Belarus are sent into labor camps by the by Stalin's regime so they're taking trains to the north Maria Abramovich your two braids a railroad on your chest a train runs up and down your braids your grandson plays a string quartet with a pocket knife on the window glass. Outside, ever pines. The train claps, 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 claps. Maria Abramovich, mouth at shoulder length. Maria Abramovich, are they braids or truck tracks? Maria Abramovich bakes grey bread. A moonrib lies on the kitchen table. Maria Abramovich, make yourself a tiny Eve to ease your nights, to make chickens laugh. Um, I should probably explain that Eve here is not evening, right, but the biblical Eve, the kind of the progenitor, the female, great female ancestor. And um, Maria Abramovich is the oldest um, female relative that I know of, so she's my personal Eve. You'll hear that in Belarusian uh, her name is not uh, Maria Abramovich, but Maria Петроуна because we use patronymics um, and that would be uh, a more natural way to address her. Maria Петроуна, ваши косы прикладзіныя як рельсы празгрудзі. Па гэтых косах єдуть цягнікі. Ваш внук грає скрипічный концерт кишенним ножиком на цягніковым вакне. За окном вечно червоная сосны. Цягнік няму кажа, яшчэ, 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 яшчэ. Марэя Петровна, рот на плечей. плячэй. Марія Петровна, Пятроўна, гэта косы чорных шынаў сляды. Марэя Петровна, пячэ шэры хлеб. Месячное рабро лягло на кухонный стол. Зляпіце сабе, Марэя Петровна, маленькую Еву. Вам на радость курам на смех.
2: Thank you so much. It's so interesting hearing you read both and hearing uh, things like claps, 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 and then yes yishy, yes, she, yes yeah. she. <laughs> It try. does. Uh, <laughs> I, I sort of. It feels actually like it works in both languages. That 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 sort of image that you're conjuring conjuring of a train. Yeah. Thank you. On the thank you. That was I was going <laughs> for. <laughs> but it's amazing that it works in both. But mm-hmm. it, is that. Is that very common for you in terms of writing in both languages, that you feel like you can achieve everything you want to achieve in both
4: languages? You know, Sean, it would be very controversial to say so, but I'm going to go for it. Do it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it works every time. I found that in my experience of writing in two languages, nothing is untranslatable. Mm. And uh, if you approach it with uh, a mind free of any burden or restriction, everything can be translated. How do you sort of view your relationship
2: with, with the Belarusian language? Like, is it is it very emotional for you? Is it a, a language spoken in your family?
4: Uh, no. I grew up in a Russian-speaking family, which is very common for uh, somebody like me, born in um, 1981 in the Soviet Union, in a small provincial republic <laughs> in the Soviet Union. I. S- Studi- studied the Belarusian language in school. Um and um uh But it never occurred to me to write in the Russian language, which is my first language. But I don't quite think of it as my mother tongue. Mm -hmm. By now, I am, um, you know, a misplaced person who lives between several languages, Mm -hmm. because I teach in the United States, so I use English daily. With my family, I um, use—with my family in Minsk, I use Russian. But then there is a large Belarusian-speaking community whom I speak Belarusian, and none of these languages I know really well. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware of it. Um, but uh, luckily, uh, I um, very strongly... S- hang on to the, to the idea that poetry does not come from language, right, but rather from the unsayable, from the untranslatable that we always fail to translate (laughs) and to say. And it only makes then sense for me that I'm trying to say it in a language, in any of the, in any language in which I know I would fail ultimately, because it's so um, imperfect.
2: Well, Vaughan, I have to bring you in now. Um, so Vaughan writes in uh, Te Reo, which is the uh, it's the primary language spoken in the Maori population in New Zealand. Is that right?
5: It would be nice to say that, but no, it's uh, too many Maori don't know Te Reo Maori because it was literally suppressed and deliberately suppressed by our colonial overbearers. We actually originally came from these fair isles, and there was a evisceration process set in place in the 1800s, which not only Tārāo, but Māori per se were eviscerated. So the language almost died out. So when I went to school last century, because I'm a very old man now, uh, te reo Māori wasn't even available. We had to stand up in assembly, and this is a South Auckland school full of primarily Polynesian students, Māori, or from Pacific nations, and we had to stand up and sing, God save the Queen which we found most bizarre when we looked around at each other because we couldn't quite see the relevance of the Queen to our populace. So it wasn't until 1987 that Māori, te reo Māori actually became an official language of, of our fair isles. So unfortunately, especially many urban Māori, and they went to cities to gain employment because they were basically bastated from the country areas where they grew up, lost the, lost the language, and it's slowly coming back in. But it's not a majority language.
2: And so in terms of your own relationship with the language, um, it, w- it wasn't spoken in your household at all? Or?
5: A little, yeah. but I always had empathy with, for, for the tongue, and I just picked it up, practised it, used it on a diurnal basis, had some good mentors. Uh, these were Māori from rural areas where it was spoken in the few isolated spots in the North Island of New Zealand, and became proficient in it. Mm. So now I would say it's my equal first language. But I d- a bit like our friend from Belarusia, I, d- I don't just speak English and Māori because my wife is from Philippines, mm. whose first language is Kapampangan and then Tagalog, so I speak that fluently. My stepchildren are from Hong Kong, their first language is Cantonese, so I have to speak that fluently. I spent several years in Brunei, Jerusalem last century, again showing my age. And I speak Bahasa Malau, uh, which is similar to both Māori and Tagalog, cause We're all, um, via our DNA, interrelated, stemming from the matriarchal side in in Taiwan of all places. So the languages share a lot of similarity of vowel pronunciation, and actual words, which are identical. So now I speak many languages. And it's a case, again, of the situation where I'm at and what else is being spoken. And it's a good good way to be. I think I'm very lucky.
2: And uh, people always say that, you know, learn, you learn another language, you learn a new way of thinking.
5: Of course, because words encapsulate culture.
2: Well, let's let's hear a poem from you. Okay,
5: I'll, I'll, I'll do the reverse. I'll read it in, uh, in Māori, then I'll translate it. Tahi kūpu anake, ki he au ki nui na kaitorangupu porangi, ki he au ki nui te tanga ta rābukore, ki he au mahana o ta au, ko tumanaku te kūpu. Ki he au ki nui na pākanga, ki he au o whakakonuka ma Kia au te mate a moa o na karārahe ko te kupu. Ko te kupu anāke, kotumanako te kupu, koutumanāko. Ka huri ahau ki te reo ingurihi. I will turn to the English language. The title is Only One Word. In a world of many mad politicians, in a world of many destitute people, in a world of global warming, hope is the word. In a world of many wars, in a world of corruption and greed, in a world of the extinction of animals, hope is the word. Hope is the only word. Hope is the word.
2: Hope. Well, I actually did want to ask both of you, and please feel free to jump in, about your relationship specifically with the English language. Because obviously for a lot of people, and a lot of uh, people that write in, who are translated into English, for some of them it can be that they, their relationship with English is the, the coloniser, well, well, it, a it is a colonial language. But
5: it's, 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 it's Tove's husband, Robert Phillipson, wrote about um, linguistic imperialism. It's, it's going on, it's neo-imperialism. And too many countries now, and I speak from experiences I taught in them, because I've taught in many countries, and I was an agent of the Hydra, there's even a further irony, uh, incorporating English teaching as a second or foreign language to students who will never use the language, including my own stepchildren, and spending billions of dollars on bringing over native-speaking English teachers to go to those countries on good pay, huge gratuities, well-paid returning affairs to teach a language that isn't really needed for the majority of the populace. So Britain here is doing damn well. It's bringing in billions to your coffers. But the unfortunate side is... Indigenous tongues are dying out.
2: Yes, at an amazing rate. Like when we said at the start that it's it's one every one to two weeks, basically. Um, how about you, Valgina? What's your relationship with English? Because obviously you, you live outside
4: of Belarus now. Um, yeah, but I do return to Belarus often and publish there. Um, and, uh, of course, I understand that we have to be very careful and suspicious of English and its colonial past and present and its imperial past and present. Um, but um, for me, uh, my complicated relationship is with Russian, uh, another imperial language. The Russian empire um, closed Belarusian schools and burned Belarusian books. And education, right, was always used, um, uh, is what always justified uh, the colonialism, the linguistic colonialism and linguistic genocide. So uh, we used to be mainly a rural country with... Um, Belarusian spoken by uh, in rural areas and to for a child from a peasant family to go to school meant to learn russian right that was the schooling if you did not speak russian then you were uneducated but in the cities uh, there, there is a generation of young people who never lived in the Soviet Union, unlike me. So they never they were born already in the independent Belarus, and uh, so they their relationship with Belarusian is already different. They they um, understand that it's not just the language of the uneducated country people, right? It doesn't have to be derogatory, but it has become kind of the language of hipsters now, right? <laughs> (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So it it became cool to speak Belarusian Mm. because you became woke. You know, if you speak this language, you understand that you are not a colonial subject. Um, But Russian is still associated with power, with um, any kind of um, social... Um, leverage uh, uh, that you might have in your career, right? Um, Everything is in Russian language. With Vaughan, I mean,
2: has there been any sea change in terms of Maori? Because obviously from over here in the UK, we do see occasionally examples of New Zealand politicians, uh, white politicians speaking Maori language at public events. I'm thinking of Jacinda Ardern maybe, mainly. Um, Is that for you, is that sort of any sign of any positive change? Oh, or is I, it I, a I, I think late? so,
5: and indubitably, compared to what I said when I went to school well before my esteemed friend <laughs> last century, Te Rau Māori, it wasn't spoken, people actually were castigated and legislated against for saying kia ora. I remember a case, I think in the early 1980s, a Māori wahini, a, a Māori lady, said kia ora on the telephone operators and was castigated, I think she almost lost her employment for even saying two words in Te Rau Māori, which literally mean be well and hello, when she answered somebody's phone call. I, I, I see change from that situation, of course. As I said, it is an official language of the country. It is obliged to be available in courts and other jurisdictions. It it has grown to a degree, but there's still a program against Te Rau Māori from too many people who are ignorant of its Legal and epistemological and ontological st- stature mm-hmm. the authentic existential stature of ta maori, so there's still a long way to go, so it's a sea change, but it needs to be a much more seismic sea change which is, it's sort of reaches a, 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 a stasis a stage of stasis right now the the number of people who who claim to be uh fluent to maori speakers hasn't really grown massively in the last few years. It went up quickly in the 1970s, 1980s, into the 1990s with the advent of Te reo which a language nest for children under the age of five. And it grew prolifically, but it's plateaued now. So my answer is, in Cantonese, mamate. It's about 50-50. You know, it's so-so. It's but yes, there's much more awareness and it is good that politicians are, 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 are utilizing it. There's it, still that backlash of generally older generation Pākehā people who say, what are we having this stupid language for? We don't need it. No one will use it, which is ignorance.
4: Yeah, yeah. I would like to chime in on that. Please. Because the, um, it's not just, um, right, our government that resists funding any kind of Belarusian language endeavor, but it's us, right? It's, it's the people who display great great ignorance, um the kind of aggression uh, that Belarusian language often faces from uh people um it's it's abnormal because it's a language right it does not endanger you in any kind of way <laughs> it cannot be violent or aggressive towards anybody but the whole the the very idea of it um provokes uh, or, or brings out great aggression in people. And that kind of aggression, when I see it, that kind of hate, mm. when I see it, I know that it can only be self-hate, right. right? That there's no other reason to react like that to the idea of language. Uh, and that self-hate Comes from that great historical colonial trauma to accept Belarusian, not even to speak it, but just not to not to show hate towards it would be to acknowledge those traumas mm. um, and um, and there is but the self hate is really strong mm. the that kind of double consciousness of our people is really strong and um yeah, it will take, I think, many generations to turn that around.
2: As I guess a point to end on, I mean, a lot of people listening, a lot of our listeners are in the UK, and we know in the UK that there is a basically institutionalised resistance to learning other languages. What can people be doing in terms of changing this, in terms of urging this, this attitude shift? Because we're talking about this in terms of shame and guilt, Um is there something that ordinary people can be doing in terms of helping preserve these languages? And
5: Well, c- c- can I speak to your point? Te reo Māori still is not compulsory in New Zealand schools. This is, this is nearly 2020, and we have a Labour government who are empathetic towards that process, but it still hasn't happened. Too many people in New Zealand don't know enough about what happened. So what can people do? Well, don't feel shame and hate. Just educate yourself. There's books out there. It's really up to you if you're listening. Make the effort. Speak a couple of words of tarau or whatever endangered language every day?
4: Um, learning language is facing the past. Uh, it's, um, it's the excavation of meaning and a kind of the, an experience of walking walking through it. People think of language as something practical, as you were saying, why should I learn it? Um, I don't need it. Uh, as if th- there was only practicality to language. And b- because what, for me, what multiplicity of languages means is n- it's not about practicality. It's not about being able to, f- to buy a coffee when you are in a foreign country. It's rather about understanding um, who we are And what our meaning is, it's also a creative tool of digging inside yourself and understanding oneself. And usually an exposure to another language challenges you um, and, and, and makes you so aware of how imperfect your own language is, how arbitrary and imperfect and not enough to know yourself, to truly know yourself.
1: Chris McCabe's Poems from the Edge of Extinction is published by Hachette in the UK and Chambers in the US. After the break, Clive Bootle joins us to discuss whether languages really can be rescued from oblivion. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. With us in the studio is Clive Bootle, who's a publisher on a mission to help preserve minority languages. Claire, you bumped into Clive recently because of a Livonian poet. Where where even is Livonia?
0: Oh, we're talking about uh, Valtz Ernstreich, who I, I, I've become a bit of a fan of, actually. He's a bit of a rock star, although a, a rock star among a population of 20. <laughs> <laughs> is that not about the population of Livonia? Uh, well, it's, that's
6: the number of people that speak Livonian. Um, um, where, where is Livonian? Uh, it's uh, on the Baltic coast of uh, Latvia. Um, so it's a, an area that's been depopulated through um, Soviet, um, Sovietization um, and traditionally is the, the homeland of the Livonian language, down to 20 people.
0: But um, Valtz, is uh, it's a, it's an area that spans several cultures and several countries, isn't it? So so Valtz, um, taught at the university or got his degree from an Estonian university. Yeah. Now, has set up a Livonian institute in a, in, re- in the, the University of Latvia. But but Livonian is a Finnic language, so it doesn't actually relate to Latvian at all. <laughs> no,
6: no, it doesn't. Uh, it, it is um, um, associated with uh, with Estonian, which is. Which is across the Baltic, so that the um, migration and the language must have developed. I'm not a linguist, but assumed to have developed um, from Estonia rather than from Latvia.
0: So this book, which I, I you, you see, I, I have a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Although uh, since I have been holding it close to me since the spring when we met at this session, yeah. this European Literature Night at uh, the British Library, people like us, um, it's beautiful, beautifully produced. Um, but with Thank parallel you. texts, yes. and this is your publishing philo- philosophy. You always do them in parallel texts, yes, which sometimes results in extremely fat books, which don't get through my letterbox. So I have to go and collect them <laughs> from the post office. Oh, I never really. Thought,
6: sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. The the, the anthologies that I do, I, I've done ten um, major anthologies of minoritized languages, um, and they're not parallel. They, the The translations follow the original texts, but they are. they, they do include. They are bilingual
0: and the the strange thing about this this Livonian book is that it when I read it i it was a sort of bit of this this conceptual moment when I thought actually for Latvians they're more likely to understand it from the English than they are from the livonian yes. even though so so I, I the English language is acting as a bridge from one part of Latvia to another part of latvia <laughs>
6: <laughs> that's that's probably very true that's very true although I, I suspect that a lot of latvians do actually speak Finnic uh, languages as well
1: it, is uh, that how you see what you're doing though as a kind of way of making bridges yes absolutely
6: yeah i i think it's a, it's a, my contribution i suppose to um cultural diversity um and for for many for many people um artists that i've tr- uh had uh, produced their uh, books in translation it is a, c- a kind of calling card um for them if they go to a um a, a f- book festival poetry festival in indonesia or north africa then they can present the english which is likely to be understood in in those communities rather than in livonian which of course is not so
0: actually, interesting that this is relates to what olga tukarczyk said after she won the uh, after she won the nobel well she actually said it to me, before she won the Nobel, which is that that you you know that actually being published in English is a world event. That's the point at which a writer becomes global, even for somebody like her. So she, so her arrival, it, her her, the, her win of the book of Man Booker International yeah. last year was what put her on the international stage. Yes. So what you're doing is putting people on an international stage, even if that means taking them back to themselves.
6: Absolutely, yes, that, that, that's exactly what it is, and, and uh, um, it means that people can then uh, take their poetry to other, other cultures, book festivals, as I say, all, all over the world. Yes, it's, it's, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's a kind of strange idea, really, that the very language which is, uh, in a way, destroying minority cultures is the one that's also giving life to them. But uh, they're
1: bridges to places that are almost inaccessible normally.
6: Yes, uh, they are, and, and 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 people are very appreciative of the of the fact that they want their books in into in, in English. Of course, they do. So, uh, so, how do you go about finding those languages, finding the poets to work with? Uh, well, uh, in, in the case of uh, the Livonian, I was uh, I I did I do some networking at the London Book Fair, and I came across the Baltic states. Um,
0: stand. Was that how you discovered him? So yeah. you, only very recently. You seem uh, like old friends. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
6: we've been to Cornwall together, I yeah, Cornwall,
0: Cornwall being, I have to point out, Cornwall, be, you have 34 books relating to Cornwall, including in Cornish. Yes, Yeah. It
6: was, I, I, fi- I find that um, my, uh, often minority languages, other, other minority languages are well received in Cornwall. And I think probably um, many of the languages that, I, uh, that uh, are more familiar in um, Edinburgh or uh, Cardiff or Truro than they are in, than, in London. Them, yeah, you know, because people get the idea of a minoritized language because they
0: have them next door but this is all, but the, the livonians were also a seafaring people and I, I was really struck by the similarity between sings the work of sing it's sort of a work of lament a work of um, and of people going off to sea of people being owning an ancient people being embedded in a land that is a coastal land as well
6: yes i, I mean i think that the it, the, the way I read um, Waltz's poetry is, is, is it's, a, it's the poetry of replacement. Is that is very much a culture that existed? It, there's a poem I forget which one it is. There is a, there is a city beneath a city. Um, the idea that, that that Livonian, which was a, which was a vast culture, and she took in most of um, much of Latvia, including Riga, was replaced by by Latvian. Um, so it's it's it is a it is a, a, a poetry of replacement. Reimagining um, cultural connections is actually very is, is is very exciting, I think, and and there are people who are doing
0: that, you know, particularly in Scotland. Just before we broaden it out a little bit, there's one he writes haikus. It's one of the things, the forms he writes <laughs> in three li- three line poets. And this this one I was very taken with this one, very short. Um, His swords lay your breath on them, and only rust will answer. I mean, sort of yeah. it sort of quite haunting and, really haunting, and very yeah. simple but quite profound. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yes. In the interview earlier, Valgina talked about uh, aggression towards her language, uh, Belarusian. Do you, do you find that European states are keen to support their minority languages? Have you encountered any sort of antagonism to the work that you do? Uh,
6: in some cases, yes. I mean, it really varies. I mean, the Latvian literature... Uh, people have been extremely supportive of livonian um, they, they see it, they treasure they treasure the, the, the livonian uh, obviously there are in, in, in places where, where languages are, are more contested I mean, such as Catalan well obviously Catalan is the, is the big example, which is um, you know historically has, uh, Galician also in fact the spanish uh, the languages of the Iberian Peninsula are i think very strongly contested and um, by the centralized um spanish state um, in 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 when you if you go to catalonia everybody speaks catalan mm. you know, that's that, that that's it i mean and there are 10 million people speak catalan
0: so that is a very successful minority language yes
6: it is, is it? yeah i mean it has some claims to not being a minority language really but it is a it is a, it's not the state language um so, yes, I mean I say ten million people that 's prob that 's more than speak any Scandinavian language. Mm. I mean, a lot of people think that endangered languages are something that happen remotely, and of course that that is true, but there are many languages in Europe which are endangered, and indeed, there are languages in the British Isles which are critically endangered, Manx, for example, with a Maybe not a thousand speakers, Cornish, the same. The, 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 the dialects or languages of the Channel Islands is probably not 500 people speak uh, speak them. Um, Serkie, the, the, from Sark, I think there are 20 people that's, that speak it. So, you know, it's not just something that happens, um, you know, in the Far East or in the Amazon, um, it's, it's actually on our doorstep.
0: We mentioned Cornwall before. One mm-hmm. of your languages is Kernowek. Mm-hmm. I'd never even heard of Kernowek. This is terrible, and it's a language in my country.
6: Yeah, I hadn't heard of it. Really, the whole my whole project began with um, with a, a, a manuscript which was given to me in the last century, <laughs> um, of collection of poetry in in Kurnowek, uh, and obviously I re- read it in English, and I was kind of surprised by it myself. I didn't really. I knew that there had been a language. Cornish um, but I didn't know that people still used
1: it You say there's like 20 people left speaking Livonian, do you think the book you're publishing is going to change that 23, 25, 2000 Um, Not directly but I think it
6: gives confidence to a culture um, that um, recognition by a majority culture like English does give confidence to people that speak um, a minoritised Language.
0: the Livonian Institute at, at in Latvia University only opened last year 2018 That's right, yeah. so so it's this is a new a very new movement and part of the new movement is is making available the text both in the original and in translation yeah, exactly it? i mean
6: there is a there is actually a folk house in in Livonia which was built i think in the 1920s and designed by quite a, a well-known Finnish architect i i, I believe and that's a sort of, I wouldn't say it was abandoned, but it's, you know, it was there in the 20s when there was a, when there was a, a culture, um, a, you know, a living Livonian culture. But that, of course, was destroyed really by, by, by um, Soviet security, which moved everybody away from the coast. And therefore people couldn't, you know, uh, engage in fishing, which
1: is what they traditionally did. And you're working basically in European languages, aren't you? Yeah, I do European languages. How many, how many languages do you cover then? Oh, well,
6: I, I suppose about, so far, about 20. And how, um, and how many are left? Oh, hundreds.
0: So are European languages?
1: I,
6: I, really, I do, Europe.
0: yes. Yeah. So so t- hundreds of European languages yes. waiting for you to discover, with literatures attached to them, because this is yeah. the point as well. You have to find poets in those languages. Poets are very important. Then, uh,
6: Yes, they are very important. I mean, poetry is, is very important to me, and it, it's a sort of, it, it, it conducts, the, the culture is the main to me, it's it's a very important vehicle for stabilizing a culture to have a majority poet. Why? I don't know. There's something about poetry which which kind of um which gets into the sort of in, in, into the DNA of a of a culture. Is and it also
1: that a poem has to exist in a language in some sense? Ooh, yes, I suppose so. And so the language has to exist for that poem to be. I have what, what
6: I call the Bootle test of the viability of a language. Uh, the first is the first test is, can you buy a packet of fags in that language? Uh, has the culture got a significant dedicated poet? That's two.
0: There are three in Livonian.
6: The third is, the third test is, um, has the Gruffalo been translated yeah. into that language?
0: <laughs> and is it in Livonian? Not yet. <laughs> it's
1: only a matter of
6: time. But it
0: probably is in Norman, and uh, it is. In fact,
6: they've just launched. They've just launched a Gruffalo in in Gerier, the language of, of Jersey. Yeah. So what's next? Well, I'm hoping to um, um, to produce a, a book of uh, three Latgalian poets. Latgalian is a, is a language or a dialect um, from Latvia.
1: You can find People Like Us by and Strife or indeed any of the other books in the Lesser Used Languages of Europe series at francisbootle.co.uk. And that's all for this week. Next week, Alison Flood talks drugs, Mexico and Donald Trump with the legendary American crime author Don Winslow. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Richard Lee.
0: Me, Claire Armistead. And me, Sean Kane.
1: And our producer, Esther Apokojeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye.
0: For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.